15 minutes late. We never, end, occasionally we'd been 20 minutes late, but that would only mean we'd be five minutes late for the Bible study, in which case I'd finish on time anyways. And that's normal, she says. Stop complaining. Um, okay. Why don't you go to some nice movie? I don't understand. Because people get home. It's a psychological thing, you know? Anyways. Um, my story. And then we got to start the Bible study. My story. This morning. 6.30 in the morning. This involves you guys. That's my plan story. story. 6.30 in the morning. I'm fast asleep. Preparing for the day. And my cell phone rings. Who in the world is calling me? And uh, I thought, you know, is it, uh, where's Norma? Norma, where are you? Norma. I thought, is it Norma? 6.50. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so who's calling out the Bible at 6.30 in the morning? So I stumble out of bed, found my cell phone on the, on the living room table, answered, Office of Evangelization. <laughs> and on the other side of the line, this voice says, Hello, this is Father Benedict. I'm calling to find out more about the St. John Institute of Catholic Culture. True story. St. John. And that's our institute. That's what we're doing, right? And uh, I said, Father Benedict. I said, Father Benedict. I think, uh, great, great. I'm um, trying to, you know, figure out who I am still, you know? I said, because yesterday I sent out my email for this, and I figured maybe it got forwarded to him. So I said, Father Benedict, are you a, a priest of the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area? Thinking, you know, it's our going. This is Father Benedict Groeschel. I went from being asleep to being, you know, Father, whoa, nice, great, 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 nice to talk to you. Father Ben Groeschel called me this morning. Yeah. Because Mon has been saying, get Father Ben Groeschel to give a talk. So I faxed him about three weeks ago and I didn't hear anything back. And so he called me. And I said, in the fax, I said, I said, we can you come on a short notice. It's okay because we're in the DC area. If you're here doing something, we'd love to host you. He says, I'm gonna be there. Guess when? When? Next month. Oh my god. On April 26th, maybe. Now so don't go tell, hold on, don't don't tell a bunch of people. Because I don't know till tomorrow morning, because he told me. Call me tomorrow morning at 6.30. <laughs> so I had to set my alarm for 6.30 to call him. And he says, I'll know for sure by then. So uh, anyway, so we pray, pray tonight that that happens. And unfortunately, my uh, that's a Thursday night, and my Bible study at Starbucks that night. So you guys come to his talk. Don't come at Bible study. And uh, as though I need to say that, right? Yes, Norma. For both cannot remain today after uh, uh -huh. Yes, I have photocopies for you guys. Um, although I only have 35, so maybe I can, I, can, I can get it to you another time maybe or something. Okay? Just stay. Is he coming for you to What? Is he coming for you to Here? No, he's coming to teach it, do a thing at uh, at the Psychological Institute and uh, Psychologist. And, uh, I'm going I'm to propose to him uh, spiritual warfare, uh, angels and demons in the battle over man's soul. That would be good, I think. Yeah. All right. He must be doing pretty well now. Oh yeah, you almost died. Yeah, it's good now. It's in my brand new car. Yeah. And there's Mon back from the dead. Yeah. 
He created the Garden of Eden as a dwelling place for man because he loved man as his son. He created him as his son. And that's where he wanted him to dwell. In the midst of that paradise, God planted the tree of life from which man could eat and live forever. His point of communion or communication between man and God. He would partake in the life of God through the tree of life. But as you know, man disobeyed. He sought life apart from the one who gives life, and he found only death. Okay? He was cast out of the Garden of Eden, not for all eternity, but in order to prepare him through penance to come back to paradise in the right way, to receive what God had planned for him in the beginning, to partake in the life of God again, to be called a son of God again to do what he was supposed to do in the beginning. All of salvation history is that story of man going away from God and his paradise of delight or coming back to him. I talked to you guys about um, that basic salvation history story that Adam and Eve, Adam, gets kicked out of the garden. Who gets called back in? Abraham, right? Or you could say Noah, right? And his sons end up, through their sin, end up in this situation. Abraham's called back in. And then what happens? They sell his descendants, right? He ends up selling, they end up selling Jacob's sons, and up selling Joseph into slavery, into Egypt, right? And they're called back in. We can put over on this side the garden the entire time because that paradigm of the garden continually appears. Okay? And finally, they're called back in with Moses okay, into that, that land flowing with milk and honey, that very place where they believed the Garden of Eden had been planted in the beginning. And upon that rock where they believed Adam had been formed in the beginning, man once again stood in the house of God, in the temple of Solomon. And carved into the walls of that temple were palm trees and gourds and lilies and pomegranates hanging off of the posts. You name it. It was a golden garden wherein man would come and communicate with God again. Upon, in the midst of that golden garden was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And guarding the way to that Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim, the angels, guarding the way in with the flaming sword, if you will. And upon that Ark, God said he would communicate with man. On top of the Ark was what was called the mercy seat. We, we read about it, okay? Between the arms of the cherubim was the mercy seat, the throne of God. And from that point, God said he would speak with man. He would speak to the high priest, okay? 
And that's what we concluded with last time. That this paradigm, this image of Eden, continually reappears in, in, in Scripture because it is what God has planned for his people. And, the, and God's plan does not change. We finished last time talking about that golden garden, the Temple of Solomon. Okay? Built in seven years. Dedicated on the seventh month. Dedicated for seven days. Uh, the cherubim were there. The foundation stones were of jewels, recalling the ground of paradise. And so on. And the most important thing, it was the dwelling place of God. If you recall last time, I read you two quotes from St. Ephraim and, and Isaac of Nineveh, accompanied by the knowledge which was hidden in the ephod. Remember, St. Ephraim says, in the, he says that in the Garden of Eden, uh, there was the tree of life in the center of the garden where the cloud of God was, the glory cloud of God was over it. And around that, like a gate, was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And so they had to receive from the tree of knowledge in obedience at the right time when God offered it to them. And then their eyes would be open and they would see what God had planned for them and receive it. But instead, they ate from the tree of knowledge in disobedience and their eyes were opened and they saw what God had planned for them and they were cast out into darkness. Okay? Similarly, in the Holy of Holies, or in the temple, there's the Holy of Holies. There's the outer court. And the priest, when he enters in, St. Ephraim says, enters in with the ephod, this, this jeweled piece hanging upon his chest. And it was from the ephod that St. That Ephraim says he was able to discern the truth. And in fact, there's certain points in Scripture that indicate that. We don't need to get into it tonight. Okay? These instruments he had in the ephod by which he would determine the truth. Okay, it's very, the way the scriptures see it, it's very obscure, but the tradition holds that through that, he had the gift of the tree of knowledge by which he would enter into the inner, inner sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, and receive from God what God had planned for him in the beginning. Isaac of Nineveh says, the same applied to the plate on top of the ark from which the priest would learn from God whatever was necessary by revelation once a year when the high priest entered at the solemn moment of prayer while, at the trunk, while all the tribes of Israel were gathered and standing in awe and trembling in the hour of court and prayer. The high priest entered the inner sanctuary and while he lay prostrate on his face, the utterances of God were audible from within the plate which was over the ark by means of an awesome and ineffable revelation. How fearful was that mystery which was carried out on that occasion. Can you imagine? Prostrate on the ground in the Holy of Holies and hearing the voice of God audibly. They tied a rope to the foot of the priest with bells on it because only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And when he went in, his movements would make the bells you know, do their noise. And that's how they knew that he had not died in the face of God, being a sinful man. If the bells stopped ringing, they knew that he had entered unworthily and been struck down, and they would drag him out by his feet, by the rope, because they could not enter, okay? Lest they also get struck down. So, that's all right. That's funny. Turn to the book of Sirach. That was very funny to him, I guarantee you that. <laughs> I don't know. Turn to the book of Sirach. Um, just before Isaiah. Just before Isaiah. 
This is uh, unfortunately one of the seven books that um, are, are not accepted by our Protestant brethren. We're going to see how beautiful it is. Sirach, just before Isaiah, if you find Isaiah, you're going to be good to go. Watch out, Sirach chapter 50. into the perspective of the Jews, the perspective of their vision of the high priest and what he was like. Okay, it's a beautiful text. It's a, just, it's a meditation. And so I'll read it to you, but it really should be just meditated upon. Simon, chapter 50. Simon, the high priest, um, was uh, one of, I believe, one of the Maccabee brothers. Am I right, Anson? Yes. I believe, Yeah. So they're, they're speaking of Simon, um, and this is what they say. The leader of his brethren and the pride of his people was Simon the high priest, son of Onias, who in his life repaired the house and in his time fortified the temple. He laid the foundations for the high double walls, the high retaining walls for the temple enclosure. In his days, a cistern for water was quarried out, a reservoir like the sea in circumference. He, cons he considered how to save his people from ruin and fortify the city to withdraw a siege, to withstand a siege. How glorious he was when the people gathered around him, as he came out of the inner sanctuary, like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in the glorious clouds, like roses in the days of the first fruits, like lilies by a spring of water, like a green shoot on Lebanon on a summer day, like fire and incense in the censer, like a vessel of hammered gold adorned with all kinds of precious stones, like an olive tree putting forth its fruit, and like a cypress towering in the clouds, when he put on his glorious robe and clothed himself with superb perfection, and went up to the holy altar, he made the court of the sanctuary glorious. And when he received the portions from the hands of the priests, as he stood at the heart of the altar, with a garland of brethren around him, he was like a young cedar on Lebanon. And they surrounded him like the trunks of palm trees, all the sons of Aaron in their splendor, for the Lord's offering in their hands, with the Lord's offering in their hands before the whole congregation in Israel, finishing the service at the altars and arranging the offering of the Most High, the Almighty. He reached out his hand to the cup and poured a libation of blood of of the blood of the grape. He poured it out at the foot of the altar, a pleasing odor to the Most High, the King of all. Then the sons of Aaron shouted. They sounded the trumpets and hammered work of hammered work. They made a great noise to be heard for remembrance before the Most High. Then all the people together made haste and fell to the ground upon their faces to worship their Lord, the Almighty God Most High. And the singers praised him with their voices, a sweet and full-toned melody. And the people besought the Lord Most High in prayer before him. 
who, who is merciful, till the order of worship of the Lord was ended. So they completed his service. Then Simon came down and lifted up his hands over the congregation of the whole congregation of the sons of Israel to pronounce the blessing of the Lord with his lips and to glory in his name. And they bowed down in worship a second time to receive the blessing from the Most High. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so this vision of the high priest, like Adam restored, like Adam before the fall. N.T. Wright says the high priest, N.T. Wright is a, is a, is a great Protestant scholar, he's passed away now, I think. The high priest ruling over Israel is like Adam ruling over all of creation. The high priest ruling over Israel like Adam ruling over all creation. What was Adam supposed to do? How was he supposed to rule over creation? God said, have dominion, rule over creation. And how was that to be accomplished? How was he to perform that function of ruling? As a priest and offering sacrifice? Yeah, and what was the sacrifice to be? What's that? Oh, we've uh, talked about it a couple times, you guys, but remember that Adam was the pinnacle of creation, Adam and Eve. But the seventh day was the fulfillment, even, of their lives. And so Adam, like a priest, offering to God, was to take all of creation and order it back to the Creator, giving it back to the one from whom he had received all things. And in that would be his sacrifice of love to the Creator, dedicating all things and blessing them and making them become what they were supposed to become. And so you see Simon, the high priest, he goes into the Holy of Holies, he beholds the glory of God, and what does he do? Like Adam ruling over all of creation, he turns about and comes out of that sanctuary and goes out to the people of the world and he blesses them with the blessing of the Most High making them holy in the image of God. Now, let's leave for a few minutes at least the Old Testament behind and turn to the New Testament. St. Augustine says that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old is revealed in the New. The Old Testament is revealed in the New. Okay? So hidden in the old is the revelation which Jesus Christ is going to give, as we will see. Okay? However, you cannot discern what, what is going to be given without, truly discern it, without the revelation of the New Testament. It's only with the revelation of Jesus Christ that we learn what God had prepared from the beginning. He is what makes sense out of all of the rest of Scripture. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. You guys are a lot more familiar with some of the text we're going to deal with today. I said that the pinnacle of creation was man. And in the beginning of the Gospel of John, what do we read? In the beginning was the Word. Okay, John referring us back to those first words of Genesis. I've spoken with you about this before. 
And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made, created through Him. And without Him was made nothing that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You remember in the beginning, the light and darkness. You remember at the flood, the light and darkness. You remember at the crossing of the Red Sea, the light and darkness. Okay? The same thing happened in the temple, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we don't have time to get into it. This struggle between light and darkness, and this attempt at the recreation of man. Here in the Gospel of John, we begin the creation again. In the beginning was the Word. We don't have too much time to get into it. We'll look into it in our Gospel of John Bible study after Easter. But the whole prologue of the Gospel of John, the first 14, some people say 18 verses, which is extremely important for the for Catholics. You, some of the older people remember this text was read at every single Mass in the old days. You probably memorized it. Okay? In the center of that prologue, the prologue is written in what is called a chiasm. I've talked to you guys about chiasms before. But a chiasm is when the author writes the first verse of a, of a text, and then way down at the bottom of his of this unit, he has another verse which mirrors, another phrase which mirrors the first one. And likewise with the second and this one. And all the way like that, down towards the middle. Until he gets to the center of his chiasm. And the center of his chiasm is the most important point in his, in his entire text. And the center of John's prologue. We'll go over that whole thing about the parallels. But the center of John's prologue is what do you think it is? Many of us would say verse, verse 14, and the word became flesh, but it's not the center of his prologue. The center of his prologue is, yeah, verse 12. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. You remember, in the beginning, man was made in the image and likeness of God, and that image and likeness of God represented what? Sonship. Adam was created as a son of God. If Jesus Christ is the Savior, and I believe he is, and you hopefully believe he is too, he came to restore us to what we lost in the beginning. And what did Adam lose in the beginning? But his sonship. His relationship with his creator. And so here in the recreation, the beginning of the Gospel of John, we get again man being given the power to become a son of God again. Okay? Look at, chapter, at the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Jennifer, you want to read that for us? 
when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Nice and loud. Stand up. Stand up. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and, all, and alighting on him, and lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay. Again, finally, man. And we always we, we look at Jesus and we see God. And oftentimes we forget the man's side. That a man came out of the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. You remember I taught you about the church father's perspective of Adam in the beginning. He was naked, but what? What did they say? He was clothed in the Spirit of God. And so Jesus, our Lord, takes our human nature upon him and does for it and with it what we could not do on our own. What the whole Old Testament struggled to get, our Lord is able to accomplish because he's not only man, but he's also God. And so he takes our human nature and draws it out of the waters at, like at the beginning. And the waters part, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, like Adam before the fall. And God says, Thou art my beloved Son, restoring in our Lord human nature. I'll quote, I'm going to quote to you guys two times from my brother. He wrote a, a text on this particular passage. And he says, When Jesus entered the waters of the Jordan, the Spirit of God descended from the heavens. When Moses crossed the Red Sea, the Ruach, the Spirit of Hebrew, parted the waters, and through it, Israel became a new creation. When God remembered Noah, he sent the Ruach, the Spirit, to part the waters that the ark might rest on the mountain. All this imagery was based on the parting of the waters of the first creation over which the Spirit of God was moving. In his baptism, Jesus has renewed fallen Israel through the waters of the Jordan and the Red Sea. He has renewed fallen human, humanity through the waters of the flood and the first creation. Through his baptism, Jesus has brought about a new Israel, a new humanity, a new Adam. If God is accomplishing in our Lord what Adam lost in the beginning, who do you think is going to be upset by that? Yeah, yeah the devil, the serpent. He is losing his grip, which he had throughout the whole Old Testament, his grip on men in the person of Jesus. And when those words are spoken, Thou art my beloved Son, we know what's coming. Because Satan will not just roll over. A battle will have to be fought. And that is why our Lord came, to fight that battle, to fight that decisive battle, and to strike a final blow against the one that held human nature in captivity all those years. So baptism gets finished in the passion of the cross and doesn't Uh, she says, what's the relationship between baptism and the death of our Lord? What God does, he takes up into his eternal life. And so what takes place in a procession of time here on earth takes place within the life of God eternally. 
And so we see within the workings of Jesus the one action of God being revealed to us in different manifestations. He goes down into the Jordan River in order to bury our human nature in a way that we can enter into the tomb before our body dies. In a sense, he goes around the tomb by giving us a way into the tomb so that our death will no longer be a death for us because we have already died in the baptism of Christ and in our own baptism when we're joined to him. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 1. We read, in the beginning, and Jesus is revealed as the light. What day was the light created on? The first day. The first day. In John, the prologue and a few verses after that fulfill the first day of creation, when light shines into the world. Turn to verse 29. So we have day one, and the light comes into the world. Verse 20, read for me, uh, uh, Dave. The first three words there. The next day. Okay. <laughs> verse 35. The next day. Verse 43. The next, the next day. day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Third day. Third day. So after those four days, three more days. I should have put this distracting. How many days? Seven days. And on the seventh day in the Gospel of John, what takes place? A wedding. A wedding feast. A marriage covenant between God and his people. And who happens to be at that marriage covenant? But a bridegroom who has failed to provide for his bride. The wine fails. And who shows up on the scene? But a new bridegroom. And he looks to his mother and he says, Woman, the same name that Adam called Eve in the beginning. And he does what Adam failed to do in the beginning. He, provi he provides at the marriage feast for his bride. Instead of failing in his marital covenants and his covenant with God, Jesus does what Adam failed to do. And who do you think is going to have a problem with that? The devil. And from that point on, from the baptism of Jesus, from the wedding at Cana, all the way through the gospel, Satan will plot the death of our Lord to somehow bring down this man who is restoring mankind in the image and likeness of God. I read you a quote. It's a traditional exegesis, a commentary of the Jews back a couple times ago. Or maybe it was last time. Regarding the rock upon which the temple was built. You remember that. In the center of Jerusalem, the rock of Moriah. And upon that is today built the dome of the rock. Traditionally, it was Solomon's temple that was there, the dwelling place of God. It was upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. It is upon this rock that Solomon built the temple. It is from this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock which is the capstone of the gates of Hades. 
What did the Holy One Blessed mean he do? Like a man setting in place the central pole of a tent, he raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called the spindle stone, for it is the very navel of the earth from which the whole earth is stretched out, and upon the, this stone is the house of the Lord. Who built the house of the Lord? Yeah? Who else? <laughs> yeah, the son of David, King Solomon. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a blind... Well, I'll wait for you guys. Don't read yet. <clears throat> then a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Who's the son of David? Solomon. Turn to chapter 13, verse 18. We could look at other texts, but we can just choose a few. Hear then the parable of the sower. When one hears the word of the kingdom, when, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown. Look at verse 24. Another parable he put forth before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Look at verse 31. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven. Verse 33. He told them another parable. parable the kingdom of heaven. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of, a fine, of fine pearls. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, net, <clears throat> like a net which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. You feel like Jesus is trying to get a point across? <laughs> Chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, throughout all the Gospels, Jesus is identified as the new Solomon. And throughout those Gospels, Jesus himself proclaims the rebuilding of the kingdom of God. If he is the new Solomon, as the demoniac cried out, what does Solomon do? He builds the house of God. And where does he build that house of God? Upon what rock? The rock of Moriah. Turn to chapter 16, verse 13. I know you guys know where I'm going with this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Some say John the Baptist, <clears throat> others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Translate Christ for me. The anointed, the Messiah, the King. You are the King. You are the anointed one of God. And as King, as the son of David, as the new Solomon who has come to restore the temple, what must he do? He must build the house of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The powers of death, the gates of Hades. It is upon this rock that the, first, that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. And it is upon this rock that, the, that Solomon built the temple. It is from this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock which is the capstone to the gates of Hades. When Jesus Christ, the Word of God, became incarnate, he did not become incarnate for himself and himself alone. He came to incarnate God on earth. And so all of the Old Testament, if we have eyes to see, are enfleshed, incarnated in the work of God. No longer do we have the golden garden of Solomon. We have a living temple of the living God, the true garden, the true temple of paradise. And upon Peter, upon the rock, the new Solomon builds his house. There's one rock in the Old Testament, one rock for the Jews, that's the rock upon which Solomon builds his temple, and it is the rock of Moriah that gates, that rock which holds down the gates of Hades and death. And death will not prevail upon the earth as long as that rock is in place. And so Jesus Christ, the new Solomon, builds his temple upon that rock. But this time, not a dead rock in Jerusalem, but a living rock in St. Peter. Yeah. You remember, maybe you don't know, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll have other times to look at this, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the text of the covenant with King David. And what does God say to King David? He says, your son will build my house, and your son will become my son. The son of David will also be the son of God. The son of David will be the new Adam. And this new Adam, the son of David, will do what the old Adam failed to do. Solomon, David's, David's heir, built a garden, the temple in Jerusalem, a golden garden. Jesus Christ, the new Solomon, builds a living garden, no longer shining with gold as a symbol of divinity, but divine itself. And that garden is his church, the dwelling place of God and man, where man can come and receive what God had planned for him in the beginning. On the seventh day of creation, 
what was man to do? What was he called to do? Rest. To rest with God. And what did that rest look like? The worship. Exactly. And in obedience, God would give him the gift of the tree of knowledge. And as a result of that gift, what would man receive? The tree of life. That point where man would eat from the tree of life and receive the life of God. If Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, if he came to give us what Adam lost in the beginning, he better give us that most central thing, that most important thing by which man may eat and receive the life of God to communicate with him. In the beginning of the restoration of paradise in the building of Solomon's temple, in the central most place, in the midst of a golden garden, was the mercy seat. And God promised that he would communicate with man through that place. That in some sense, the high priest would come and eat from the tree of life through the revelation given to him. Where do you guys think that the fathers see the tree of life in the New Testament? Yeah, and the cross. St. Ephraim says, Greatly saddened was the tree of life when it beheld Adam stolen away from it. It sank down into the virgin ground and was hidden to burst forth and reappear on Golgotha. Upon the tree of the cross hangs the Son of Man. And what does he say from that tree? Eat, and you will live forever. Turn to John chapter 6. Jesus Christ did not say those words, I would not be a Catholic today. 
because our Lord, as the Savior of mankind, must give us back what we lost in the beginning. If only, if only all Christians understood that, they would realize the importance, the absolute necessity that our Lord feed us with his own life. Because if he does not feed us with his own life, we have not returned. Adam has not re been restored. I'll quote one last time from my brother. Upon crossing the waters of the Red Sea and entering into the desert, Israel had begun their pilgrimage to the Promised Land. Along their way, God sustained them with manna, a foretaste of the fruits of the garden, which they would someday see, the Promised Land. We Christians who have passed through the waters of baptism have embarked upon the new pilgrimage of the new Exodus. And like Israel of old being accompanied by God, the new Israel is sustained with the new man as a foretaste of the future feast of the garden that awaits our bodily return. What's he saying? That even now, the Eucharist is like the manna was to Israel in the desert. It is our food for the journey prefiguring even a greater communion with God in the paradise to come. In the desert, God dwelt among men. He dwelt in the garden that Moses had built, a traveling garden. And man encamped around that garden and entered in. But they awaited the time when they would enter into the promised land and dwell in the garden with God. And so we also, in our pilgrimage on earth, are like Israel in the desert, being fed by God with the manna of the Eucharist, awaiting the eternal banquet of the Lord, where we will receive him in all his fullness, where what looks like bread now, we will behold God. What smells like wine, what we drink and tastes like wine, we will see the Spirit of God pouring into our souls. Father James Groening, in a, in a um, meditation on the passion of our Lord, says, for the, for the beginning of his passion, he chose a wonderfully beautiful garden. How significant this choice was. In a garden, the first Adam had committed the first sin, the sin of disobedience. Therefore, it was in a garden that the second Adam should say to his father, Not what I will, but what thou wilt. In a garden, Adam, by an abuse of liberty, had plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. In a garden, therefore, by the bonds of Christ, our fetters were to be broken. In a garden, God had pronounced the death penalty upon Adam. In a garden, Christ would take upon himself the judgment and this curse. In a garden, the human race was lost, and usually an object is sought where it was lost. St. Ephraim continues the same mindset. Our Lord subdued his might, and, and they seized him, so that his life-giving death, his, that his living death might give life to Adam. He gave his hands to be pierced by the nails in place of that hand that had plucked the fruit. He was struck on the cheek in the judgment hall in return for that mouth that had devoured in Eden. Because Adam let slip his foot, they pierced his feet. Our Lord was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in modesty. 
With gall and vinegar he made, he made sweet that bitter venom that the serpent had poured into humankind. What was Adam's job in the beginning? What was he called to do? Yeah, to till the earth and to keep it. To till the earth and to keep it. What type of a guy was he supposed to be? A gardener in the beginning. That's what God made, made him for because he made him in his image. And God had planted the garden of Eden and therefore man was to do what God had done. Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Chapter 18, verse 5. This is a little instruction on what the priest is supposed to do when he enters into the sanctuary. You remember that sanctuary for the Jews was a type of paradise restored. And so what was this man to do when he entered into that place? <coughs> Chapter 18, verse 5. Dave, go ahead. You shall have charge of the sanctuary and of the altar, that wrath may not fall again upon the Israelites. Remember, it is I who have taken your kinsmen, the Levites, from the body of the Israelites. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord for the service of the needy tent. But only you and your sons are to have charge of performing the priestly functions in whatever concerns the altar and the room within the veil. I give you the priesthood as a gift. Any layman who draws near shall be put to death. Okay. In chapter 18, verse 5, I have a little bit different translation, but it's the same in the Hebrew. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary. What was the word you had there? And you shall attend. And you'll have charge. Okay? The word in Hebrew is avad. And avad can be translated as charge, attend, or... Till. In verse 7. And you shall, and you and your sons with you shall attend. Did it say charge there again? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, okay. And you shall attend to your priesthood for all the concerns, the altar, and that, it, that is within the veil. And you shall serve. In Hebrew, Shamar. How do you think it can be translated alternately? To keep. The exact same Hebrew words that are used in Genesis chapter 2 for the instruction about what Adam is to do in the garden. Now in this golden garden, the priest is to do what Adam failed to do in the beginning. I'll finish a quote I started from N.T. Wright earlier. The high priest ruling over Israel is like Adam ruling over all of creation. Even his vestments were, according to one version of the tradition, the self-same garments which the Creator had made for Adam. What vestments were those? But the, the clothing of grace. Okay? 
And so he was vested in these beautiful jeweled robes to show forth the robe of glory which the king of all had given him. David Chilton says, The high priest was a living symbol of man fully restored to fellowship with God in the garden. His forehead was covered with a gold plate on which was engraved the phrase, Holy to the Lord, as a symbol of the removal of the curse of Adam's brow. Remember, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. His breastplate was covered with gold and precious stones, and the hem of his robe was ringed with pomegranates and golden bells. As another symbol of the freedom from the curse, the robe was made out of linen. For while he was ministering, the priest was forbidden to wear any wool at all. Quoting Ezekiel, They shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering. They shall not gird themselves with anything that makes them sweat. Because the sweat of the brow is one of the curses. The priest entered into the Holy of Holies as Adam restored before the fall, beginning to reenact, to do what Adam was supposed to do. In the culmination, in the fulfillment of John's recreation, we come to the crucifixion. Turn to chapter 19 of John. Chapter 19. Now arisen in the garden and raised up that Adam who had fallen in the garden. 
From the tomb does Christ bring Adam in glory into the marriage feast of the Garden of Paradise. Many of you have seen um, crucifixes with a little image of a skull underneath the cross. Okay? You remember our Lord is crucified upon what hill? Golgotha. Translated, the place of the skull. Whose skull? You guys didn't know that. By tradition, the Jews believe upon that mountain Adam had died. Why? You remember, they believed Jerusalem to be the location of paradise. And when Adam was cast out of the garden, I spoke to you a couple times ago about this. If you were a son cast out of your father's home and you knew what you had done was wrong, where would you go? Nowhere. You'd turn around and knock back on that door and wait till the day when you could re-enter. And so our Lord, the new Adam, is exiled from paradise, being put in chains by the soldiers and dragged forth from that city, being taken outside the walls of Jerusalem to the very place where by tradition Adam died and was buried. And it was there that he set up his cross so that his blood would drip upon the skull of Adam, literally drip upon the skull of Adam in order to resurrect him from the dead. You see that? What's that? What the other two people represent. The thieves? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's probably the fathers, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that right now, but the fathers probably talked about human nature on both sides. You know, one going up to heaven, the other going down to hell. Those who follow Christ and profess him. Hey, one other thing I want to say about that. That's okay. Verse 41 again. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, where no one ever had been laid, had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. Who is Jesus in the Gospel of John? On the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, he's the light which shines into the world in the prologue. And so Mary Magdalene makes her way to the tomb of the Savior while it was still dark in order to see on that first day of the week the light comes shining forth from the tomb. From verse 1, Dave, you mind reading that for us? From verse 1, nice and slow. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the other who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. 
for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. Then the disciple returned home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. Who is Mary Magdalene, do you think? What do you think the church, who the church fathers saw in her? A type of whom? Yeah, Eve. What was by tradition Mary Magdalene's uh, sin? She was a harlot. She had gone after the one for whom she had not been made. You remember St. John Chrysostom commenting on Eve in the beginning. What are you doing, O woman, speaking to the serpent in the first place? You should have been speaking with the one for whom you were made, with whom you shared all things on equal terms. Mary Magdalene had been a harlot and had gone after those who were not her Lord. And when she met her true Lord, Jesus Christ, she followed him and her heart went after him. Not as the modern nonsense in, in the stupid books and the movies tell you, but as the mystical, mystical marriage between the soul and God takes place. Every soul seeking its Lord. St. Augustine says about her weeping, And the eyes that sought for the Lord and had not found him were now free for tears, grieving more that he had been taken away from the sepulchre than that, he had, that, than that he had been slain on the wooden cross, since not even a memorial place was left behind. You can imagine. I don't know if Eve outlived Adam or not. But if she did, could you imagine her holding Adam in her arms and watching her husband get old and watching him die and knowing that she had a role in his death? Similarly with Mary Magdalene and each one of us, as we look upon the cross, it is our sins which nail him to the cross. Looking upon him, we ought to stand weeping like Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine what was in her heart, what was in her soul, as she realized that she couldn't even hold her husband, her Adam, anymore? Her Lord. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. In a new garden, she looks into the tomb, and what does she see? Two angels on both sides of that place where salvation is to come for her. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying that she turned around and saw Jesus. And saw, I'm sorry, and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, you remember the title given to Eve in the beginning. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where they, you have placed him. Why do you think he appears as a gardener? But that he's Adam restored in the image and likeness of God. 
Don't read on yet. Don't read on yet. I think that's a beautiful statement where she makes there that makes it there about her not um, I don't know where they have to put you. Well, yeah. Doesn't that hit you in the heart? Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, Father Gruber, who's a, he's, um, hopefully he'll come and speak here sometime. He was going to come this year, but he wasn't able to. He's amazing. Um, he says, did Mary suppose that he was a gardener? She was wrong, and yet she was right. He was a gardener. How did she suppose him? But this was the gardener who placed Adam and Eve in paradise, who provided an Eden for them of every kind of flowering tree and fruitful vine. This was the original gardener who created us in his image and likeness, who gave to us through Adam and Eve the invitation to union with God, and was now going to restore us to the garden from which we, we had been banished. Verse 13 again. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him saying that she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, in Hebrew, Rabboni. Father Dom Prosper Berlanger, that um, uh, mid 1800s, mid 1800s monk in France, uh, wrote a whole series of comments on the liturgy. On, this, on the liturgical year, says, "On that great Easter day, Magdalene, like a morning star, announcing the rising of the Son of Justice, who was never born to set." Woman, said Jesus to her, why weepest thou? Thou art not mistaken, he seemed to say. It is indeed the divine gardener speaking to thee, the same that planted Eden in the beginning. But now dry thy tears in this new tomb, whose center is an empty tomb. In this new garden, whose center is an empty tomb. Paradise is restored. The angels no longer close the entrance. Here is the tree of life, which is born fruit these three days past. This fruit, which thou, O woman, art eager of, as of old, to seize and taste, belongs to thee now by right, for thou art no longer Eve, but Mary. If thou art bidden not to touch it yet, it is because, as thou wouldst not heretofore taste the fruit of death thyself alone, thou mayest not now enjoy the fruit of life, Till thou brings back him who was first lost through thee. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. And one last quote i got to read to you, and then we'll be done. So sit tight, because it's worth it. Well, it's two quotes, but... When did Mary no longer see the gardener, but see the risen Son of God? When did her eyes finally perceive that he was not a caretaker, a custodian, that he was not a maintenance worker, but the divine Son of the living God, the risen Christ? 
St. John's Gospel tells us that when Jesus uttered her but one word, to her but one word, her eyes were opened. And the word that he uttered was simply her name, Mary. No one can reproduce the timbre of the Savior's voice, its warmth, its resonance, its cadence. But it was a sound that came from his lips, a sound which revealed in its speaking the depth of the love in its heart. There is a way of naming someone that is greater than sound, the speaking of the name more accurate than syllables, more expressive than words. And Jesus, the divine teacher who held the crowd spellbound for years, spoke but one word. That by a single word, he captured her, he grasped her heart, he identified her, he knew her. Her whole being was, as it were, laid bare before him in a moment. And she was quickened by his naming her name, Mary. To be known and yet to be loved, to be well-known and to be well-loved, to be seen and to be called out, to be named and identified with intimate love. That's what Jesus conveyed by a single word. And in a single moment, Mary knew that no one else could love like that but him. Mary knew that no one knew her heart and soul like that but him. How well she knew that no one else could speak her name like that but him. She answered him, Rabboni. St. John tells us that the word Rabboni means teacher. Actually, the word Rabbi means teacher. Rabboni is the familiar form of the word in Aramaic, which denotes the meaning, my teacher. It's my, it's personal, my, he belongs to me. Mary said, my teacher, she answered. Mary, Jesus said, my teacher, she answered. It was a kind of betrothal of the divine heart to the heart of this woman. They named each other. That's how she recognized him, by the sound of her name. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, you banished us from paradise and you recalled us. You stripped off the fig leaves an unseemly gar covering and put on us a costly garment. No longer shall Adam be confounded when you call, nor hide himself convicted by his conscience, cowering in the thicket of paradise. Nor shall the flaming sword encircle paradise around and make the entrance inaccessible to those who draw near. But all is turned to joy for us who are heirs of sin. Paradise, yes, heaven itself may be trodden by man. If we as Catholics could only see rightly and properly what Jesus Christ has given us in that building over there, what he has given us in our baptism, what he gives us when he feeds us with his Holy Eucharist, if we could only realize that we speak into the very ear of God when we go to confession, because God dwells now on earth with us, no one would ever leave the Catholic Church. No one would ever walk out of those doors. We would live our whole life in there if we really realized what he had given back to us. So, as Holy Week uh, continues, or Holy Week approaches, I think it's good for us, meditating on this, to prepare ourselves to stand like Mary Magdalene at the tomb. For the early church, it was not enough to see Christ upon the cross. We had to climb up and be nailed to the cross with Christ. We had to be fed by his own hand. We had to go to the tomb early in the morning. If you don't plan on going to the vigil, change your plans. Go to the vigil. Keep watch with the rest of the followers of Jesus to see him rise from the tomb. 
because if we do that, we will walk with him the rest of our lives, risen from the dead with him, like Mary Magdalene, like the disciples. And we will turn them, and we will go get the world who is so badly in need of the Savior. Um, thank you guys all for coming for the, uh, the series. We'll start Gospel of John. Um, what I'm going to do is we'll take a, like a three-minute break, four-minute break. If anyone wants to stay for this reading, it takes about 20 minutes. Um, and uh, or about 20 minutes. And uh, it's a meditation upon his descendant help by a scripture scholar referring to a lot of the stuff we've done. So anyways, um, why don't we do that? And then if anyone wants to you know, answer questions and stuff, okay? All right, thank you.